Thank you, guys. Um, how's everybody doing? Good? Cold? I know. It's rough out there. Um, it was especially rough Friday morning at 4.45 when Claire and I hit the pavement trail. Oh, <laughs> it's the Super Bowl Sunday, so <laughs> um, Hey, I don't know if you had a chance to watch the Republican debate last night or maybe the Democratic debate on Thursday night, but there was a lot of back and forth and things got a little nasty in both of those uh, debates. And I've always found it interesting at the end of, at the, end of, the, uh, of the debates, to, we have to remove those things. I'll just. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. They're just right there. Um, so, uh, so I'm always finding it interesting at the end of, of, of the debates when the candidates, and I'm, you know, you're always kind of tuned into this human nature, when they go up and shake hands afterwards or during a commercial break, like what they do. Like after they just got done savaging one another, and then they come over and shake hands and congratulate one another on a great debate. I always find that quite interesting. Well, today, I'm sure because some of them, when they're shaking hands, they're thinking to themselves, I'd really like to have my hand around your neck and be choking you right now for the things that you just said in public about me. But um, in any case, today, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, is, and that represents a great example of commandment number six, and I think you'll understand by the time we get through uh, today. Um, remember, Moses and the Israelites have just fled out of Egypt. They've arrived at the base of Mount Sinai down in the Sinai Peninsula. They are um, camped out there at the base of the mountain, and God has given Moses, or is giving Moses the Ten Commandments. Um, and so one of those, we're gonna, we're, we've looked through the first five of those, uh, the first five weeks, making our way through the Ten Commandments. Today we're at commandment number six. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and you can go ahead and stand. We're going to read Exodus chapter 20, one verse, verse 13. I mean, you're just going to be standing for just seconds here, okay? Here it is. It says, commandment number six, it says... You shall not murder. You may be seated. Very good. Very good. I know it. I, I mean, the only thing we could go shorter than that would be John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept, right? So maybe we'll, we'll preach on that one Sunday. Um, for us to understand fully what it is that this verse is talking about, for us to understand fully what it is that commandment number six is focused on, we need to um, ask and answer three questions. And the first of those questions is, what exactly is God forbidding when he says you shall not murder? What exactly is he talking about? Well, first of all, let me tell you what God is not forbidding. God is not forbidding hunting, fishing, or eating of meat. That's not what God is forbidding because those, all those activities involve killing animals. God is specifically talking here about killing another human being. Um, for example, God uh, killed an animal, a goat, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, and he used the skins of that goat to clothe Adam and Eve. Uh, God told the Israelites all throughout the Old Testament to make sacrifices uh, for sin and sacrifices for praise to him. And the sacrifices they brought were animals. And so God himself endorses the killing of animals. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 3, he said to Moses, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. God's, God said. Um, Jesus himself sat down at the Last Supper. He was celebrating the Passover meal. And on the table, I mean, the, the centerpiece of the Passover meal was a roasted lamb. 
Jesus himself, all throughout his life, as he celebrated the Passover meal from the time he was a little child all the way up until he was 33 years of age, had uh, um, celebrated that Passover meal and would have had that roasted lamb. Um, If you want to be a vegetarian, that is perfectly okay. The Bible has nothing wrong with that, as long as you understand that commandment number six has nothing to do with the killing or eating of animals. Nor does commandment number two, what are we talking about? What exactly is God forbidding? Commandment number two um, is not talking about capital punishment. And this is where it becomes important that you um, understand contextually what's going on in this passage and that you hang with me uh, as we walk through this passage because there's a few things that I'm going to say right here that for some of us may seem difficult for us to hear. But I want to share with you what the Bible says and what God's perspective is. That's what I give you each and every Sunday. I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what God thinks. And so here's what God has to say about the subject of capital punishment. Um, The Bible is not talking about when it says murder um, it, it is not saying that we shouldn't, um, have, we shouldn't participate in capital punishment. Throughout the Bible, God endorses, in fact, capital punishment. Read the book of Leviticus, and you will see example after example after example of where people violate certain things, do certain things, and the, re- and the response, the punishment that goes to that crime is the death penalty. And so God endorses capital punishment all throughout the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, God said, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For the image of God um, has God made man. Please notice that according to the Bible, this is where it might become difficult for some of us, God does not, his design for capital punishment, his design for the death penalty is not to deter crime. Uh, We've kind of turned that into a political talking point that, oh, well, you know, it's a deterrent for people you know, murdering somebody else. That was never God's design for capital punishment. God's design for the death penalty was to punish. It was a punishment. It was capital punishment. It wasn't to deter crimes. That may, be, have, may have been a result of it, but the purpose of it was to punish the person who had destroyed somebody else's life. That was the purpose of capital punishment in the Old Testament. Um, again, we're not just talking about the Old Testament here either, though. Even in the New Testament, the Bible acknowledges the legitimacy of the death penalty for certain appropriate crimes. The Apostle Paul, for example, in Acts chapter 25 and verse 11 says, he's talking to Governor Festus, and here's what he says. He says, if I am guilty of doing anything deserving of the death penalty, I do not refuse to die. So here the Apostle Paul himself from his own lips says, hey, look, there is a right and justified moment, time, for certain crimes where the death penalty is what ought to be put in place. Number three, with commandment number three, God is not preventing someone from being a police officer, an FBI agent, or a security guard, even though this may involve killing another human being in the line of duty. Last week we said that God has established authority on earth, and part of that authority that God has vested himself in is in human governments. Human government, friends, has the right to make laws to protect civil society, and they have the right to enforce those laws with legitimate force against people who defy those laws. If you try to attack a police officer, expect them to pull out their weapon and pull the trigger. Friends, this is part of a civil government protecting the society as a whole. When the Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, do not murder, it is not referring to members of civil government um, acting in a way to protect the civility of that, of that society. 
And lastly, number six, commandment number six, is not forbidding people from serving in the military, from going to war, or even from killing enemy combatants. Friends, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel maintained a standing army at all times. God often commanded the Israelite army to go out and do battle where people were killed. David, who was called by the Bible a man after God's own heart, said himself in Psalm chapter 144 and verse 1, he said, Praise be to the Lord my rock, get this, who trains my hands for war, who, God, trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. David was definitely not a pacifist. He was not a pacifist. And nor was the Jesus Christ, nor was Jesus Christ. Because you may be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, what about where Jesus says in the Bible in Matthew chapter 5 that we're supposed to love our enemies, that we're supposed to turn the other cheek? What about those passages in the scripture? I mean, how do you reconcile? Does it seem like the Bible is trying to talk out of both sides of its mouth here? No, again, we've got to consider context. Look here in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is talking about our response to evil and our response to mistreatment as individuals on a personal level, us taking justice into our own hands. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the right of a nation state to defend its citizens. Um, He's not talking about a nation state turning the other cheek toward an aggressor. He's not talking about a nation state refusing to defend itself against the invader who is raping and murdering and plundering. This is, those things are an utter violation of the nation state to defend its charter and to protect its citizens from harm. That is not at all what Jesus had in mind when he said to turn the other cheek. He wasn't referring to an entire nation. If he was, then we should have just let Hitler run amok all through Europe and all throughout Asia. And that's what he would have done. Uh, if, if Jesus, if the Bible's talking about do not murder here, then what we should have done when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor was not respond, just say, just come on in, have everything, have at it, right? Have our country, it's yours. Just run us over. That is not what the Bible is talking about. It's not what Jesus is talking about. Commandment number six has nothing to do with armies or wars or killing enemy combatants in a time of war. You say, okay, Gordon, then what does commandment number six talk about? I mean, what is it referring to? if it doesn't have anything to do with these other areas. Well, commandment number six has to do with a very specific kind of killing. And the Hebrew word that's translated here to murder um, refers to one human being killing another human being with vengeance or premeditation or malice in their heart or as part of a crime. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 says, for the, for, for In the image of God, God made man. Friends, the Bible teaches that all of human life is sacred, that all of human life is to be protected, and the reason that they're sacred is because they are the direct creation of the direct gift of the Almighty God. And this is a perspective that is not being shared in our country today, in our culture at large, that all of human life is sacred and is to be protected. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The life of the human race, friends, is a direct gift. Please understand that. The life of human beings is a direct gift from God himself, which is why God said, do not murder, and when, why God said, when somebody does murder, the punishment for that is that their life is to be taken. 
because they have destroyed somebody else's life. They have not treated somebody else's life as sacred. And so it becomes the right of the state or the right of the Israelites in this case to enact the death penalty. There's a paradox there. I hope that you follow that. And this is not just true on a corporate level. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, God said to Jeremiah, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God, every single solitary human life is the direct result, it's a direct gift of Almighty God himself. Now, again, going back to kind of what's being taught in our culture today and where people's perspectives are, modern evolutionary thought um, has made its way into how people look at the world, how people understand uh, the value of human life. And this has caused us in America to lose sight of this perspective. Um, If evolutionary teaching, this wasn't planned, but if evolutionary teaching were true, as Darwin uh, said of his theory, which is just a theory, still hadn't been proven true, Darwin said, then all of creation should be in confusion, referring to the transitional animals. Why is there not a dog running around with a cat's tail? Because that's how a dog moves from being a cat into being a dog. I mean, that's the idea, that one species of one kind begins to make changes, and then there's this transitional phase, and then it finally becomes this new species or this new kind. That's what evolutionary teaching is predicated upon, the idea of one species uh, transitioning into another thing. And so Darwin's concept was, his statement was, why then is not creation? When you go out into the world and you see squirrels running up a tree, that they don't have a possum tail. Right? Because that would be a transitional species, right? He says, why is creation then not in confusion? And so modern evolutionary biologists will tell us, oh, well, it's because we live in an age into which all of the species have kind of, you know, risen up into their kind and there's been the perfection of the species. And so now there's evolutionary process is not necessarily, you know, in place anymore. Well, if that was the case, then the fossil record should have transitional species. I mean, like, by the millions within it. There should be confusion at some point in this evolutionary process, if evolution is true. But what we find in the fossil record is a big, fat zero of any fossils that reveal this transitional species. Now, I say all that to say this, that modern evolutionary teaching, the worldview, the perspective of modern evolutionary teaching is this, that man is just an accident. Now, when I read Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, it told me that before I was formed in the womb, God knew me, that I'm no accident, that you're no accident. But that's what evolutionary teaching says. And and a a great, uh, uh, well-known Christian atheist, I believe it was John Murray, uh, Christian atheist. (laughs) That's a study that the guys are doing on Wednesday nights. Uh, Interesting. But um, a a well-known evolutionary uh, atheist, I believe his name was John Murray, said the Uh, that man is the purposeless end of a purposeless process that did not have him in mind, that he just, oops, appeared into history. That is, according to evolutionary thinking, our lives only have value to the degree that we are able to contribute something tangible and profitable to society. You say, so I want to ask somebody who's an evolutionary atheist, hey, well, what about people who are deeply physically disabled? 
What about people who, who aren't able to contribute something to society? Are you saying because they're not able to contribute, because they're not able to be productive, that they don't have value? They don't have inherent value because that's what evolutionary teaching is saying. And so according to strict evolutionary teaching, a fetus's life has no to little value. But God declares in the Bible that this is utterly wrong. And this is the principle that lies behind commandment number six, that commandment number six is built on, namely the proposition that every human life is sacred. And so when somebody takes somebody else's life, God says we come in and we enact the death penalty. That's the clear teaching all throughout Scripture. And that every human life is a direct gift from God. Let's summarize. Again, if you want to throw rocks, don't throw them at me. All right? I'm just telling you God's perspective. And if it's different than our perspective, then what we need to do is kind of step back from where we are, from what we think, and say, maybe I need to rethink some things. Maybe I need to hear God's perspective on, this, on, the, on these issues. <clears throat> Let's summarize. What commandment number six is forbidding is somebody who is motivated by anger or revenge or as part of a crime from ending another human being's life. You say, okay, Gordon, okay, I got it, I got it. Commandment number six means that you shall not murder and killing somebody, like in time of war, in the line of duty, is different than murder. Murder is malice in my heart. Murder is revenge. Murder is going after somebody because of one, you know, for one of those reasons. And so killing is something different. I get it. But you say, Gordon, I've never murdered anybody, and what's more, I have no plans on murdering anybody. So it sounds to me like commandment number six has absolutely nothing to do with my life. So let's say our final prayer, and it's time for us to head to lunch, right? No, no. Remember I said there were three questions that we had to ask. The second of those questions is, how did the Lord Jesus tell us that we were to really interpret commandment number six? Jesus had some specifics about what God's true intent was when he said, do not murder. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21... He says, you have heard that it was said to the Israelites long ago, do not murder. Right? He's referring to, hey, y'all remember back in the Mount Sinai, people in his day, Jesus saying, y'all remember back in Mount Sinai when God said to Moses, wrote it down on the tablet, Moses came down the mountain, God said, do not murder. Y'all remember that? Okay. Jesus said, so that's what he's talking here. He's going to give his commentary on it. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Watch now. But I say to you, that anyone who hates his brother in his heart will be subject to that same judgment. So here we find the Lord Jesus explaining to us God's full intent for commandment number six, and that is that God goes way beyond just the letter of the law. He goes way beyond just what seems to appear on the surface. Okay, not supposed to kill anybody, not supposed to murder. I understand that. God, I got it. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's much more than that. To put it another way, in God's mind, commandment number six is not just limited to the physical act of murder, but rather it includes the state of mind and the attitude of the heart, the internal hatred and the internal malice that prompts the outward act of murder. You see, friends, murder is an act of the heart long before it is a physical outward act. This is what Jesus is pointing to. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19, he said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and all those other things. 
comes from the heart first. That's where it starts. And so therefore, as far as God is concerned to have malice in our hearts toward another human being, this is a violation of commandment number six, just the same. To have hatred, to have malice, to have evil intent towards someone, to have venom in our hearts towards another person, this is a violation of commandment number six. Because by doing this, we are committing what I will call mental murder. Mental murder against another person. In fact, the Apostle John writes to this effect. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15, John says, Anyone who hates his brother, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Picking up on what Jesus had to say. Friends, a person may never go out and pick up a gun and shoot somebody, but as far as God is concerned, having malice in our hearts towards someone is the same as murder, and that's a violation of commandment number six. My junior year of high school had a couple of rough months there where I got a big old target on my back. Maybe I was praying too much in public or sharing the gospel with people or sharing Bible verses or inviting people to church. I'm not sure what it was that I did. But there was this one guy in school, and uh, he, he didn't share my, my, my faith in, in Christ, anything like that. And so he rallied a couple of other guys together. And I remember during chemistry class, for about a month or so, man, they just let me have it. And I would go home at night, and oh, in my heart, I wished that he was dead, right? I wished that this guy was toast. I was like, God, send some lightning bolts. I mean, something, Lord, just take this guy out. And, uh, but that was that, this is what Jesus is talking about here. That there comes this point when we're disobeying commandment number six. Not because we, not just because, you know, it's not just about the physical act. It's holding that malice in our heart toward another person wishing that they were dead. Friends, the same thing is true for us as followers of Jesus Christ. We may never never go out, pick up a gun and shoot somebody, but we can still be guilty of murder in the eyes of God by holding malice and hatred in our heart toward another person, which Jesus says is just as serious, just as serious as if we had done the physical act itself. So, now, you're back into the sermon, right? (laughs) You thought, yeah, okay, y'all didn't think that was funny. All right. Um, anyway, I thought that was kind of good. But I was told this morning that um, one of the candidates had worse jokes than me. So I didn't know if that was a compliment or what. But in any case, you say, okay, okay, um, I get it. And so that means it's time for us to ask our third question, which is, all right, I'm back in the sermon. I'm back into this thing, back into the topic. So what difference does all this make then? to me right how does this impact my life you say gordon i I can see what you're saying in all this but can you help put some handles on it can you make this practical i mean how do i i mean yeah maybe i have some feelings of malice towards somebody how do i overcome that how do i keep it uh from becoming an issue becoming a sin issue in my life let me see if i can help with that i want to start by asking the question that if mental murder is sin in god's eyes Where do these feelings originate from? Where do they come from? And how do we point in our relationship with, how do we get to a point in our relationship with someone where we wish that they were dead? How does hatred grow like that? Well, mental murder usually begins when someone hurts us or injures us in some way and we get angry at them for what they did to us. Remember that anger in the Bible is not a sin. 
the Bible says in um, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Friends, anger is an emotional response to being mistreated. Anger is an emotional response to someone hurting us. There's nothing wrong with that emotional response. Anger is not sin. I want to make sure we're clear on that. However, anger can easily turn into sin. Anger can become bitterness. Anger can become malice. Anger can turn into venom and downright poison in our hearts towards the person that hurt us. And then it becomes sin. When we are rejoicing on the inside that someone who hurt us is having a difficult time, we have crossed over the line. When we, have, when we never have a good thing to say about that person who hurt us, friends, we have crossed over the line. When we resent that something good has happened in that person's life, we have crossed over the line. When we can't stand to be around that person or to have someone just mention their name without on the inside going, right? And just, just, just the anger and the angst and all of that coming on the inside of us, this is mental murder. This is a deadly sin. It's one of those things that we don't talk about a whole lot in the church. It's rare that we bring it up. It's one of those hidden sins, but it is a deadly sin. It ruins romances. It dissolves relationships. It destroys families. It contaminates offices. It ruins team unity, and it kills churches. On a personal level, as individual followers of Christ, if we are doing this, it will rob us of our joy. It will steal us of our peace. It will steal us of our effectiveness, of the power of God operating in our lives. And if the truth be told, I'd be shocked if most of us at some point in our life have not committed this sin. Maybe it was a husband who cheated on you. Maybe it was a wife who left you. Maybe it was a parent who abused you growing up and failed you. Maybe it was a child in your home who rebelled against you. Maybe it was an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend who betrayed you. Maybe it was some other relative, a brother, a sister, a cousin, somebody who treated you nasty. Maybe it's a coworker who schemed against you. Maybe it's that bully at school who keeps picking on you. Listen, I'm not saying that we don't have a right to be angry at somebody who treats us like that. The Bible says there's nothing wrong with anger. But in your anger, do not sin. What I'm saying is that if anger has turned into mental murder, into malice, into evil wishes, then, friends, it has become sin in your life. And this is where the rubber meets the road. You know, forfeiting God's power and blessing on your life in order to hang on to that malice in our heart toward that person that has hurt us, that has wounded us, that has treated us unfairly, that has treated us in a way that's just nasty. And we become in bondage to that. We become enchained to that. And friends, you need to get free. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, how do we do this? How do we get free from these feelings of malice, free from these feelings of mental murder, wishing that somebody else uh, ill will on them? Well, there are four steps that I want to give you to handling something like this, Um, and these are biblical steps. Uh, Because, again, anger is not sin. Anger is just an emotional response. God's okay with that. He designed us so that anger can happen. But if we don't handle it biblically, then that's when that anger, when that feeling, that emotion can turn into something that is crossing over the line. So four steps here, and then we'll be done to handling 
um, anger to handling these emotions. Um, if I mention so-and-so's name to you and you're rah, 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 right in your heart toward that person, um, here's how you fix how you feel about that person. First thing, number one, is you have to honestly admit before God that there is sin in your heart towards that person. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't shift the blame off on that person saying, well, God, they make me feel this way. No, no. Own it. Admit it that there's a problem in your heart and how you feel toward that other person. Admit that it is repulsive and that ask God to heal that issue in your life. Secondly is we have to genuinely repent of these feelings of mental murder in our life. To repent, friends, means to make a U-turn in our lives, to start doing things differently, to start seeing things differently. This is what the Bible all throughout, Old Testament, New Testament, is calling us to do. It's calling us to live in a different way. It's calling us to repent, to make a U-turn in what we were doing and live a way that honors God. Number three is to disavow all desire to see evil come upon this person. We have to disavow all desire to want to bring evil upon this person's head. Romans chapter 12 and verse 17 says, Do not repay evil for evil. And in verse 19 it says, Do not take revenge. You say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. After what they did to me, after the way that they treated me, after the hurt that they caused in my family and my finances, I mean, are you kidding me? You're telling me I'm just supposed to let them go and just let them go scot-free? Well, hold on here. I didn't say anything about letting them go scot-free. I just said that we need to come to a place where we disavow any evil intent toward that person. And so that brings us to step number four, and that is we need to release that person, but we need to release that person to God. We need to release that person to God. Step four is we have to give that person to God. We've got to rely on God to bring about justice. Listen again to Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. It says, do not take revenge. Never do that, my friends. Why not? But leave room for God's wrath. For it is written. That means this was in the Bible. It's a promise. You can take it to the bank that God has made to you and I. For it is written, it is mine God's to avenge. God says, I will repay. Listen, folks, God is a God of justice. I mean, God has many attributes, many characters. He's loving, he's merciful, but he's also just. And it's one of the things that makes up his character. God always sees to it that justice happens. And God says, I am the one who will get justice for you. I am the one who will carry out vengeance for you. It is not your hand to do it. God said, it is my hand it is his hand to carry out justice galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 says that god cannot be mocked that is god's not a fool god's not a fool you can't pull one over on god for whatever a person sows that is precisely what they will reap see if you sow injustice if you sow the mistreatment of others and yet still reap the blessing of god then god is a fool God has allowed you to live however you wanted to live, mistreat people, hurt people, and yet he's going to give you his blessing anyway. Friends, that would be a mockery of God. That would make God a fool. God says, but I'm not going to be mocked. I am no fool. God says, you live like that, you will reap the result of your actions. If you sow unjust treatment, 
If you sow evil, if you sow slander, if you sow hurt and deceit, God says you're going to reap the results of that because God says I'm personally going to see to it that nobody makes a fool out of me. And so, friends, that's who we're releasing these people to. We're releasing them to the hands of a God who said, I will not be made a fool of. Now, the flip side of that is that if God is going to bring justice to every person who has injured us, then, friends, we don't have to. We don't have to. We don't need to go grab them by the neck and want to choke them after a long debate. We don't have to get angry and stressed out in our heart every time we think about them. We can turn them loose, not to go scot-free, that's what you're, but we're, we're releasing them to the hands of an all-just God. God says what went around will come back around. You can trust me on that. Romans chapter 12 and verse 20 says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Why? Because if you take your own revenge on that person, God's going to go, what are you waiting on me for? You've already gone ahead and done what you thought was justice. God's going to say, I don't have anything left here to do because you went after it yourself. Friends, we need to leave room for God who says, come to me and I will do justice to this person. Listen, God will always do a better job of bringing justice to those who have hurt us, who have injured those we love. He will always do a better job of it than you and I could ever do. So we need to stay out of it. We need to give them the water. We need to give them the food. And we need to leave them into the hands of an almighty God. Um, and thinking about that, this, all this this week, it reminded me of a, uh, of a saying I heard um, a little while ago. And it, was, it went like this, be a tunnel, not a wall. Be a tunnel, not a wall. You know, when something's approaching a tunnel... And it gets to the tunnel, it just goes right through, right? But when something's coming up to a wall and it, it comes right up next to the wall, it impacts the wall and it drops to the bottom of the wall. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go through. It just stops and stays there at the bottom of the wall. And while it's there at the bottom of the wall, it putrefies and it contaminates and it stinks and it corrupts everything and everyone around it. But with a tunnel, friends, it just goes right on through. And so God says, look, when it comes to how people treat you, when it comes to their mistreatment of you, don't be a wall. Don't, be, don't let their mistreatment of you just lie there at the base of your heart, contaminating your heart, putrefying your heart, uh, making dirty and nasty everything else around you. He said, be a tunnel. Just let it go right on through. And, you'll, and God says, and not only that, you're letting it go through, but I'll be at the other end of a tunnel like a catcher, right, with my catcher mitt, bring it to me, and God will see it coming on through, and he'll catch it, and he said, I'll take care of it. And friends, this is how we stay free of mental murder our whole lives. We have to be tunnels, not walls. We have to let people do what they do to us and the evil that they try to pull off on us, and we have to let that go through us like a tunnel. And the beauty of this is, again, we're not just letting this go. We're letting this go on to an all-just God who's ready to catch it on the other side and take it from there. Friends, when we live our life based on the attributes of God, then we are prepared to live life correctly, and this is one of his attributes, his justice. And so let me conclude. This is how we need to live. 
Many of us here need to stop violating commandment number six. Many of us here need to become tunnels instead of walls. Many of us here need to release people from the stranglehold that they occupy in our hearts. And we need to let them go and let them go on to a just God. And sometimes doing this just once, friends, it's not enough. We got to let them go. And then two minutes later, we're back stranglehold, right? We got to let them go. We got to keep letting them go. Some of us need to walk around our offices, need to walk around our workplace saying, God, help me be a tunnel. I want to be a tunnel today. I want to be a tunnel, be a tunnel, be a tunnel, be a tunnel, be a tunnel. Lord, help me not to be a wall. Help me to be a tunnel. And we need to just keep telling us ourselves that. And the people around us are going to think we're nuts. They're going to think we're crazy, right? But I mean, this is, this is, this is how we'll be free. And I'll tell you, friends, that it's a wonderful thing to be able to just let people go through that are doing mean and nasty stuff to us, that are hurting us, that are injuring us, and to walk free of that. <clears throat> That's how you keep anger from turning into sin. Commandment number six, mental murder is a deadly sin, my friends. And listen, the person that violating commandment number six hurts the most is not the person who did the harm, but rather it's you and me. So let's be a tunnel. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know that this world that we live in is full of hurt. It's full of mistreatment. It's full of injustice. And Lord, we hear you today speaking to us in truth from your word that if there's malice in our hearts, that if there's a little celebration going on inside of us when we see those that we don't like having difficulty and pain, Lord, we recognize that that has crossed the line. Lord Jesus, we ask that in the quietness of this communion, Lord, that you would bring certain people to mind who have hurt us, who are contaminating our hearts, or holding on to past hurt. Lord, set us free today. Let us be like that tunnel. Not to let the person go scot-free, but to let them go on to an all-just God. And so, Lord, in the quietness of these moments today, that's where we send this hurt. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.